Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. My name is Nora Sadowski, and I'm joined by other members of the Johns Hopkins Alternative Protein Project. Hi, everyone. I'm McMillan Chang. Hi, my name is Christine Wang. Hi, everyone. I'm Mackenzie Simon Collins. Hi there. I'm Jacqueline Bedsall. Hi, I'm Lauren Blake. And now that we've been introduced, we should answer the question, what exactly is the Johns Hopkins Alternative Protein Project? We are a group that is one of the newest chapters of the Good Food Institute's University Initiative. As of now, there are 16 alt-protein projects at universities around the world, and this number is growing each year. The Good Food Institute, or GFI for short, has a mission to turn, quote, universities into engines for alternative protein education, research, and innovation. But I want to add that the Alternative Protein Project is not limited to students. We are actually an extremely diverse coalition of engineers, scientists, policymakers, entrepreneurs, writers, and other young professionals who are interested in changing the world of food through alternative proteins. So what exactly are alternative proteins? Well, they encompass meat, dairy, eggs, and other materials made using plant-based, fermentation, or cultured ingredients. You can think like lab-grown meat. These three categories, plant-based, fermentation, and animal cell culture, are supported by the GFI. There are even more categories of alternative proteins that exist, including things like insect agriculture. In this podcast, we hope to provide listeners with a broad overview of these topics and a lot of fun facts about the process of alternative protein production, as well as current innovations. But first, let's start with what motivates us and why all of this matters in the first place. This is Christine, and we are joined here by Mackenzie and Lauren, who are the co-presidents of the Johns Hopkins Alternative Protein Project, which was started at Hopkins in February of this year. Mackenzie, um, would you like to introduce like the club's mission? Yeah, absolutely. Our goal as a club is to advance alt-protein technology through supporting education, research, and some other pursuits as well, both at Hopkins and within our local community. We welcome anyone interested in alt protein to join our club Slack and in our different activities, virtual and in person, regardless of J2 affiliation or level of knowledge. Seriously, um, anyone interested is welcome here. So like um, there are a lot of my friends and I'm sure there are a lot of more people out there who are just really skeptical of alternative proteins and with good reason and a a variety of reasons, um, including like concerns about the GMOs, nutrition, and also preserving traditions. Why do you guys think people should convert to these alternatives? Well, there really are several very important reasons to eat these alternative proteins. Some of the main reasons include sustainability, personal health, and animal welfare. Yeah, I'd like to start with sustainability. Climate change, as we all know, is a very real phenomenon, but a lot of people associate environmental damage with uh, carbon emissions that happen from the transportation industry. And a lot of people don't think about what they put on their plates as one of the top offenders. So Mackenzie, if you wanted to add on to that. Yeah, absolutely. While the sustainability of alternative proteins varies by you know the individual products, virtually all alt proteins are more sustainable than their animal product counterparts. The farming and production of animal products actually creates more carbon emissions than all transportation on this globe combined. Animal products release more carbon emissions than all plant crops, with beef being the worst offender across the board. One study even predicts that by the year 2035, the shift to alternatives will save as much carbon dioxide equivalent as the entire country of Japan emits in a single year. 
Yeah, and I'd like to note another thing. So a lot of studies tend to compare the animal products with plant-based products, but also the production of microorganisms like algae requires even less carbon than plants for the production. Algae has the potential to be used as a biofuel replacement for plastic and other materials. It can also sequester carbon from the atmosphere rather than adding to it like a lot of uh, animal agriculture does. And we could also serve it up on the dinner plate as an alternative protein or an alternative fat. Um, it's just a really amazing resource, as are a lot of these other microorganisms, which we've barely tapped into. Oh, wow. That's really, really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit more about like the land usage of these alternative proteins? Yeah, sure. Alternative proteins require much less land than livestock. In fact, there is a tenfold difference in land use between beef and the majority of plant crops. Even the more land efficient animals like pigs require significantly more land than crops. There is very little farmable land on our planet, about 10% of its surface area. And yet most of it, 77%, is being inefficiently used on animals and also those crops designed to feed those animals. Is this trend like the same for water usage? Actually, unfortunately, it is. So alternative proteins require much less water than animal products in general. Fruits, which require the most amount of water compared to other plant crops, still only use about 10% of the water that beef requires. Beef requires more than 25 times as much rainwater and irrigation water than maize, uh, which is one of the most efficient crops. Uh, It's hard to imagine that massive difference in water consumption. Yeah, just to add on top of that, the issue of inefficient land and water becomes even more compounded when considering that crops that could feed humans are mostly being fed to farm animals as feed and fodder. In the field of ecology, one of the foundational findings is that energy is lost that travels up the food chain. Only 10% of energy from biomass is converted from one trophic level to the next. And the remaining 90% is lost through lower quality energy like heat and other uh, sources. Because of this uh, 10% rule, countless crops must be expended to yield a small amount of meat. This biology theory comes into play when considering that 70% of soybean and 30% of corn crops are fed to farmed animals, and both of these crops are perfectly edible by humans. It is estimated that one-third of all arable land is currently being used as feed for livestock. Oh, wow. Um, But that being said, what happens if we actually don't put this feed towards the livestock? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Removing livestock from the equation, it is estimated that replacing all animal-based items with plant-based replacement diets in the U.S. alone can add enough food to feed an additional 350 million people daily, more than the expected benefits of eliminating all food chain loss from production. In a nutshell, if we remove livestock from our diets and replace those nutrients with plants and alternative proteins, we can feed many more people on our planet. 350 million, that is, that's a really um, high number. Um, It really is amazing how many more people can be fed by just decreasing the the demand for animal products. Um, More people may be fed, but will they be healthy? So like in other words, can all proteins alone provide all of the nutrients that people usually consume from products made like from animals and do so in a very efficient manner? Yeah, the health aspect of alternative proteins is very often forgotten. All proteins have less foodborne diseases. This must be fairly obvious to us given the very recent COVID-19 pandemic. 
COVID-19 is an extreme example of a foodborne disease that turned into a pandemic, but there are many other examples. Like for example, mad cow disease, salmonella, and even hepatitis E. Alternative proteins are sort of moldable and they can be made to have a like custom nutrition and also flavor profile, uh, unlike traditional meat. And plant-based proteins, they, they generally have uh, less saturated fat, more fiber, also more uh, trace elements. And surprisingly to people, they, have, they often have an equivalent protein content to regular meat. Uh, a lot of people are really concerned that they're not going to get all the essential amino acids on a plant-based diet, but plants do have every essential amino acid. They just might be a little unbalanced. Um, they might have uh, less tryptophan in, in one plant or more lysine in another. But usually if you have a more balanced diet, you can get all of the amino acids that you need by just combining, for example, rice and with beans, which have complementary amino acid profiles on their own. Oh, wow. I guess then plant-based proteins are even better than um, regular meat. Um, that's amazing. Are there any other benefits to all proteins that we're missing here? Yeah, all proteins have the potential to replicate and even outperform the taste profile of meat products. And so we're looking at the potential of creating designer meat in the future that could have custom tastes and nutrient profiles that animals can't create naturally. So alternative proteins do have the ability to uphold most traditions, especially, you know, holiday meals, even uh, large structured meats like like a steak or a chicken breast. Yeah, and then another important benefit that we even discussed so far is that all proteins, they improve animal welfare by reducing the cruelty faced by animal agriculture. You know, animals, they're, they're sentient and they feel pain and stress, especially the larger mammals that we consume. Some have complex social bonds and languages. You know, most conditions that farm animals experience prevent them from living normal animal lives and they're downright horrendous. For example, hens often have their beak shortened or cut off entirely to withstand cramped spaces without mutilating other hens or even themselves. Pigs are castrated as infants using hot metal pieces and, you know, generally this is performed by lower skilled workers that lack proper veterinary care. Exactly. I mean, the conditions are pretty horrific. And a lot of those conditions have come about because that's how the meat industry has been innovative um, with smaller spaces or, you know, that you mentioned the, the beak cutting, but because that prevents them from fighting with each other or injuring each other, which would cause them to lose yield. And I also just want to mention that to feed the 10 billion people that we're projected to have in 2050, I mean, we have to be more innovative in how we feed everyone on the earth or the results will be catastrophic. So finding alternatives is, and being innovative in our food production is not optional. Um, up until now, the main source of protein, which we all acknowledge is an essential macronutrient in our human diet, is obtained mostly from animals in, in a lot of nations. And this is only increasing uh, as some of the most populated nations like China and India and many other countries are increasing their meat consumption significantly, as, especially as they become more westernized. But when it comes to animal agriculture, as we were just alluding to, it's been around for so long, they've worked out most of the kinks, but there isn't a lot left to try uh, in terms of innovation. The physical bodies of farm 
animals are pretty much at their biological limits. Chickens are probably the best example of this. Uh, over the past 60 years, the weight of chickens has increased four times. Uh, and that's a result of selective breeding, different feeding patterns, and also different hormones and growth factors that are added to the feed. Also, that we can maximize the amount of meat obtained from one organism. I mean, this is the meat industry's version of optimizing, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here, but all of these optimization protocols are, are just inherently becoming more and more cruel. I mean, to the point where modern farm animals just struggle to walk around. I mean, at some point, you just have to find other options. And so we're going to talk today about the biotech innovation that's been happening to improve our protein sourcing. Yeah, Lauren, I absolutely agree with everything you just said, you know, and I invite the audience to Google the difference in farm animal bodies over the years, even within current human lifetimes, the difference is crazy. You know, often the animal agriculture industry markets their products so that the animals appear healthy and happy, especially on their labeling and commercials, but they often live in these horrendous cramped conditions that are health hazard to not only the farm animals, but also the human workers at these facilities. Uh, runoff and waste from these facilities can even negatively impact surrounding neighborhoods and towns. Yeah, like after um, hearing about these negative effects, we really have to work together in order to mitigate this um, horrific situation. And there really are a lot of benefits to these alternative proteins. And I really look forward to learning more about them and even the current limitations. So thank you so much, Mackenzie and Lauren, for this amazing intro. No problem. Yeah, of course, Christine. I'm looking forward to diving into some of these different facets of all protein tech in the next sections. Now that we've outlined our motivations in pursuing alternative protein research and education, let's dive into the technology. Just a reminder, there are three pillars of the alternative protein industry that are supported by the Good Food Institute, and these are plant-based, fermentation, and animal cell culture tech. In this section, Jacqueline, Christine, and McMillan cover one of the oldest pillars of the alternative protein industry, plant-based proteins. Christine, could you tell us about the technology behind this sector? Yeah, sure, Jacqueline. Um, so there's like an entire science to getting plant-based proteins to look like meat. Um, the main ingredients of these plant-based meats are usually made from plants that are naturally very high in protein. So like soy, beans, lentils, chickpeas, rice, wheat gluten, or just like some combination of those. And when uh, making a plant-based meat, the first thing a company has to do is like decide which plant they want to source their protein from, um, which will depend on a lot of factors like the accessibility of the protein, how well it can mimic the texture of meat, stuff like its amino acid content, and also like the taste of the final product itself. So it sounds like there's a lot of options for these meat analogs. Once a company decides on a protein source for their product, do they usually do any further optimization for the plant itself? Yeah, yeah. Great question, McMillan. Um, so usually yes, but not always. So biotech has played a large role in farming and agriculture for many decades um, in order to produce plants that are pretty highly efficient and have the right flavors. This can involve old school practices like selective breeding, but most recently, um, gen genetic modifications have been more common for obtaining optimal products. 
So this genetic modification, it can be done through like random mutagenesis, which applies chemical mutagens or physical treatments like gamma rays to small cuttings of these plants. Uh, these harsh treatments will essentially speed up the process of evolution by inducing just tons of random DNA mutations. And in this method, you just have to cross your fingers and like hope that you'll see the phenotype that you want once you grow up these mutated plant cuttings. But like in the last 10 years or so, there has been development of more targeted and directed mutagenesis using the CRISPR-Cas9 editing tool. I have heard that one of the most widely used applications for CRISPR-Cas9 is in plants. But I guess with directed mutagenesis, you already have to have a specific idea of the genes you want to modify. So Christine, once you have optimized for um, the plant, what is the next step? And do you just harvest the soy, grind it up, then mix it or mix it with the ingredients for the burger? How does it work? Yeah, that's another great question, McMillan. So I'm sure the industry just like wishes it was like that simple, but plant-based proteins can obviously be consumed directly. But when it just comes to meat analogs, the proteins will need to be just completely transformed so that they have a more similar texture to meat, which is what they are actually trying to replace. So it's just a bit more complicated like that. Um, so for example, in the case of the newest Beyond Beat burger, burger, they harvest their protein from peas. So first the peas will be ground up into flour, but flowers typically only have just 20% protein or so. So you have to process the flowers to purify the proteins which involves removing fats, carbs, and also any small molecules that might contribute to a pea's distinct flavor. Um, just something you, you don't really want in a burger that is trying to imitate meat. And the final product can be either a protein concentrate, which has roughly about 50% of protein, or an isolate, which is even more pure because it's like 80% of protein. I am sure processing plant-based proteins are very energy intensive and might even produce a lot of waste. Can you tell us why the protein concentration actually matters? Of course. So for one, meat is very high in protein. So you obviously want your analog to also be very high in protein. But in addition, these protein isolates won't look or feel just like meat on their own. So it still kind of looks like flour, even in an isolated form. And if you want the protein to have some kind of structure, it has to undergo what's known as a texturizing process. That's really interesting. Can you share a bit more about how this texturization works? So one of the most common texturizing processes um, is called extrusion. And it's just an entire field of food engineering in itself. But basically, the protein isolates are kind of just sent through a barrel with these rotating screws under really high pressure and high temperature and just a tiny little bit of moisture. But wait, we know that under high temperatures, proteins are going to denature. Would, would this be the goal? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So they will basically lose their shape and denature. And as the denature proteins kind of just move along the laminar flow of the extruder, they will 
form new bonds with the neighboring proteins. This ultimately will just create these long chains of proteins that are just in interacting with each other. So the long chains end up forming fibers which look and feel very, very similar to the muscle fibers that you see in meat. Very interesting. It seems that with the high temperature and all that machinery, the texturization process is pretty energy intensive. Do you think this technology is quite a bit old? And are there any alternatives for this? Yeah, Mikhail, that's actually a really good point. And I do want to mention that, yeah, you're right. The um, extrusion is a very old technology. And there are other newer methods of texturizing plant proteins, such as shear cells or collet cells, which both use um, significantly less mechanical and thermal energy in order to actually produce these fibers. So with plant-based alternative proteins gaining so much popularity, as time goes on, it is likely that engineers will just figure out how to optimize the whole process to reduce the energy a lot more and make it a lot more efficient. That sounds wonderful. Otherwise, I'd imagine all this energy will make plant-based burgers not so friendly to the environment relative to other food sources after all. I have another question, Christine. I recently had the Beyond Burger and it actually seemed really on par with the other animal meat-based burgers at the grocery store which was different compared to other standard veggie burgers that I'd had previously. So with the Beyond Burger, it started out as red, but when I cooked it, it turned brown just like regular meat. And it also oozed with fat like a real burger does too. I, I'm sure that they add a lot of stuff to get it to look and taste more like meat. Can you comment on what happens after the texturization process? I actually tried the Beyond, Beyond Burgers too, and I had the same exact uh, experience and um, it was pretty shocking. So um, there are so many aspects to what makes meat in terms of just look, taste, and how it feels in your mouth. After the protein is texturized, the texturized protein will likely have a lot of additives to fully replicate all the aspects of an actual meat patty. And most importantly, you'll need fat since meat, as we know, is a very fatty food. And for plant-based meat analogs, usually oils that are higher in saturated fats are used, such as coconut oil, because it just has a higher melting point. And then, of course, you'll need some binding agents, like various starches to hold the extruded protein together and mimic the gelatinous texture of meat. You'll want some flavors added, like something to provide that roast aroma um, that you commonly smell in actual meat. And another important aspect of meat analogs is their coloring agent. So the Beyond Burger specifically uses beet juice extract for the bright red color, which turns brown when cooked. Another company, Impossible Foods, uses the hemoglobin protein equivalent from soybeans, which provides a very irony, bloody taste and appearance. They actually grow hemoglobin in a yeast strain via fermentation and purify it, which will be discussed in the fermentation section. Um, so usually plant-based meats will also contain pH adjusters such as lemon juice extract, which helps a meat analog maintain its bright color for long periods of time and without it fading. So it sounds like they're essentially reverse engineering every aspect of the traditional meat and performing biomimicry. That's so interesting. No wonder there's so many ingredients on the Beyond Burger label. I hear a lot of complaints about all the ingredients. You know, there's too many and they're unnatural, but actually they sound pretty natural to me. 
And at the end of the day, it's a pretty good tasting burger. And if you're eating a burger in the first place, you're most likely not eating it for health reasons. I, I, I agree with you on that, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Christine and McMillan, for this intro on plant-based meat technology. Next time I have a Beyond Burger, I'm going to take a closer look at those fibers in the meat now that I have a full appreciation of everything that goes on into giving plant-based proteins that meaty texture. Yeah, I strongly suggest it. Thank you guys for joining me. The second pillar of alternative protein is fermentation, but how exactly does it work and what makes it a pivotal part of the industry? Jacqueline, McMillan, and myself did a little digging and put together an overview of the process as well as some of the key considerations that companies and researchers have to account for when utilizing this technology. Jacqueline, can you give us a brief overview of fermentation and how it can be used as an alternative protein source? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So for a technical definition, we define fermentation as a metabolic process where organic substrates are chemically changed through the action of enzymes. And early fermentation referred to the preservation of vegetables by converting um, original sugars within them to organic acids. And this increases the acidity and it also acts as a preservation technique. And today we recognize three fermentation processes, first being traditional, uh, the next is biomass, and then there's also precision fermentation. And traditional fermentation is the process of changing a food by the activity of microbes through anaerobic metabolism. And of course, we know this type of metabolic action occurs in the absence of oxygen, and it also generates acidic byproducts through the breakdown of carbohydrates. And interestingly, food fermentation technology actually originated several thousand years ago as plants and animals were being domesticated in areas like Africa and Asia. And fermented veggie products are produced and consumed in nearly every culture and society through these traditional methods. Um, and this is also how common foods and drinks are made like beer and wine um, and also yogurt and cheeses. So we can actually thank these little microbes for making the magic happen and creating these yummy foods that so many of us enjoy. Uh, yeast, for example, have long been used for fermentation of these types of products. So when it comes to brewing beer, Saccharomyces cerevisiae is one of the key components. That is very exciting and interesting. What is the setup for this type of fermentation? How do you create the anaerobic environment with these microbes and the sugary foods? So the first cheeses and breads and alcoholic drinks were thought to result from the fermentation of milk and grains and also fruits and veggies that were stored in ceramic jars. These foiled food products were fermented and it was discovered that this process increased the amount of time that a food could be safely eaten and stored in addition to the desirable effects on the mind and body with the alcohol. And the fermentation of veggies by lactic acid bacteria was proven effective for the safety of foods like sauerkraut and olives and cucumber pickles, uh, which are known to be safe from foodborne illnesses. Uh, and the bacteria in the lactobacillus genus have been deemed generally regarded as safe to use in food fermentation. And adding these cultures has been shown to reduce or prevent the growth of pathogens through its antimicrobial properties. So to add a few more details regarding the science behind the process, these organisms produce metabolic products that have these antimicrobial properties. Some of the metabolites, including organic acids, peroxides, amines, thiols, as well as enzymes that can accumulate and cause low pH values from around 3 to 2.5. Salts can also accumulate that destroy most bacterial cells and human pathogens. 
these microbes are absolutely incredibly useful for fermentation and consumption of human food. Currently in the alternative protein world, traditional fermentation is used to improve the flavor and functionality of plant ingredients. And one such example is the fermentation of soybeans to create tempeh, which requires a fungus rhizopose oligosporus. And I guess the same is true for soy sauce and other fermented products. Yeah, and over the past century, the role of fermentation has expanded to a much broader range of applications, uh, including the biomass fermentation and precision fermentation that I mentioned earlier. So biomass fermentation uses a high protein content and quick growth of microbes to make a large quantity of protein-rich foods. And these microorganisms that reproduce through this process actually become the ingredients for the alternative proteins. So for example, the alternative protein company corn grows filamentous fungi through the fermentation for use as their primary ingredient to generate their meat-like products. With regard to the science of corn products, Fusarium venenatum fungi are used to make the mycoprotein that is textured and flavored to produce a product that resembles chicken or beef. It contains dietary fibers beta-1,3 and 1,6 glucans, as well as chitin, that is thought to also function as a prebiotic. This filamentous fungi creates the mycelia using a fermentation medium that is continually removed from the fermenter and heated quickly to kill the mycelia and coagulate the cellular proteins. This limits the total RNA content by causing the cell to leak its RNA through the cell walls. Why does the RNA need to be limited? So if serum uric acid forms when RNA is metabolized to uric acid, it can cause gout, which is a condition that causes pain and inflammation in your joints when uric acid forms crystals. So the heating step during the fermentation process causes the release of RNA content and ensures that uric acid buildup in the serum is prevented after the product is consumed. Wow, that is an important quality control step. What's next? Next, uh, the biomass is then collected using a dewatering centrifuge and is now considered mycelial hyphae that are similar in morphology to animal cells. At this point, it can be mixed with other ingredients like protein binders, veggie fats, flavorings or colorings, and then uh, shaped into its final desired form. Next, the product is then heated again to cause the binders to gel up and hold everything all together just like the connective tissue holds microfibril cells together in meat. And you can adjust the texture of the product by changing the amount of binders leading to changes in firmness or chewiness, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so we should also discuss the third type of fermentation, uh, precision fermentation, which makes use of microbes to generate the functional ingredients of interest. And so the microorganisms are programmed to produce large amounts of proteins, similar to how insulin is produced for the treatment of diabetes. And in general, fermentation can improve alternative proteins by helping to optimize the digestibility, the taste, texture, and nutrients of plant ingredients. And this type of fermentation allows for the efficient production of specific proteins and enzymes, as well as flavor molecules, vitamins, pigments, and fats that can improve the quality and the taste of the product. And for example, bifidobacterium has been shown to significantly increase the crude protein content of soy-based drinks. 
And the fermentation of soybean meal with lactobacillus plantarium was shown to increase the essential amino acid L-lysine. And this particular amino acid can be a challenge to incorporate in a vegan or vegetarian diet. Also, specific microbial strains can synthesize vitamins such as uh, vitamin K and the B vitamins through this fermentation, which again can be a challenge to consume enough for those who follow a vegan or vegetarian diet. According to the GFI, there is a lot of hope for advancing fermentation by optimization and research into the target selection and design, strain development, feedstock optimization, bioprocess design, and end product formulation and manufacturing. Can you speak more on that? Yeah, and one such area of optimization and research that certain companies in the alternative protein sector are utilizing is on the filamentous fungus Aspergillus oraceae, uh, referred to as koji. And it's an important strain used in the traditional fermentation and food processing industries. Um, so koji is often used in the production of soy sauce and other soy products, but genetic engineering technologies have allowed for improvements in koji strains for the production of fermented foods that can be added to plant-based foods to enhance the metabolites and nutritive value of the alternative proteins. And one company called Wild Earth is actually utilizing koji in their dog food to improve taste and nutritive content. Super cool that it's also in the dog food industry. I, I do know there are other companies such as Impossible Foods who performed a series of optimization techniques and experiments to generate the ingredient that gives their burger its meaty taste. And they used a microbial fermentation process. Well, there's other companies too, such as Melly Bio, which are using fermentation to make honey without bees. This is a very exciting time to harness microbes and develop new yet familiar animal-free products by incorporating research and development into fermentation processes. Thank you, Jacqueline and Nora, for sharing about this pillar of alternative protein biotech. You're welcome. Yeah, my pleasure. While fermentation utilizes microbial cell culture, another mechanism we can think about to combat the current food crisis is to use animal cell culture. This is the third and final pillar of the alternative protein technology supported by the GFI, and it is commonly referred to as cultivated meat or clean meat. This technology is rapidly expanding, and in this section, Lauren, Mackenzie, and myself discuss some of the issues companies are facing as they try to increase production and develop novel products. A recent State of the Industry report released by the Good Food Institute, or GFI, reported that over 70 companies are currently working on cultivated meat in the world, and the types of meat products being targeted by these startups include, and I'm quoting the report here, beef, chicken, pork, shrimp, duck, white fish, mouse, salmon, tuna, faux gras, fish maw, lamb, kangaroo, horse, and sturgeon, which is quite a few. The report mentions that most of these companies are startups, which means that they likely don't have a wide distribution yet. So Lauren and Nora, what are some of the issues these companies are facing as they try to expand their production? Yeah, so to start, we should think about the process of cultured meat or cultivated meat. It first starts with an animal cell biopsy to isolate stem cells, and stem cells have unique properties that allow them to proliferate, or in other words, make more of themselves, or differentiate, which means they can turn into a new type of cell. These stem cells are generally grown in bioreactors with optimal nutrients, oxygen, and growth factors that stimulate them to keep dividing. And then eventually these stem cells can be fed a different type of media, one that will cause the cells to differentiate into a new cell type. 
which could be muscle cells, fat, connective tissue, vascular tissue. I mean, really, they could be turned into any different cell type depending on the growth factors being fed to them because essentially growth factors are the signaling molecules that your body uses to tell ourselves what to do and how to behave. After these cells are differentiated, they can then be harvested and converted into a meat product, which is most commonly a ground type of meat product. You can think something like a chicken nugget. And this whole process on average takes about two to eight weeks. And there's already a lot of information out there about current issues with this process, like the best animal cell type that will give you optimal growth. And of course, just the cost of the growth media on such a large scale. We could go into great detail on these individual aspects, but one other big issue companies are facing as they try to grow production, and that I think is worth discussing in the time we have, is that a lot of the times the process used at a smaller level of production does not always easily transfer to a larger level of production. In other words, you can't just always make things bigger, like bioreactors, and expect the same outcome. This issue is commonly referred to as the scalability problem. Yeah, Nora, tell us more about the scalability problem. First, we should look at how the industry of cell growth and production is organized. There are four major phases, and listing these from smallest to largest, they are lab scale, pilot scale, demonstration scale, and commercial scale. The smallest, lab scale, with small bioreactors and incubators, is more easily achievable and actually most cultivated meat companies are technically still in this smaller developmental phase. However, there are a few companies in the next level of production known as pilot scale. Uh, you may have heard of them. They are Blue, Nalu, Mosa Meat, and Super Meat. This means that these companies likely have small support of a local restaurant or a small grocery distribution. Now that production level still sounds really small, but at pilot scale, it is estimated that these companies can produce hundreds of metric tons of cultivated meat per year, which is pretty sizable. But the scalability problem really arises because of cellular integrity and nutrient distribution. One really good example that we can talk about is in the shear stress that is introduced on animal cells in a continuously stirring or spinning bioreactor. You can imagine a small lab-scale spinning bioreactor of approximately 10 liters. The flow of nutrients and oxygen to the animal cells in that reactor is much greater at a lower rate of spinning because of the small volume. The animal cells are maintained in a lovely suspension and everyone is happy. But now imagine trying to increase that production to a much larger scale bioreactor of say about 20,000 liters or so. The flow of nutrients and oxygen to these cells is a lot lower because of the volume and because the cells naturally want to settle to the bottom of the tank. So you have to increase the bioreactor spin to compensate for this distribution problem, which could lead to issues in maintaining cellular integrity as at the bottom of the tank, cells are experiencing a much greater force from the impeller or the rotator in the bottom of the tank. There are some clever ways and other designs that people have come up with to fix these issues, but I think these are short-term solutions, and these same sort of issues will continue to arise as companies move to the upper production levels of demonstration scale or commercial scale, for example. You know, as it turns out, the scaling process is so critical right now that in order to streamline it, uh, for cultured meat purposes, there's actually a consortium known as the Cultivated Meat Modeling Consortium. And their whole purpose is to just bridge the gap between the small scale lab and pilot levels of production and the large scale commercial level of production. 
Yeah, so what kind of things does the consortium specialize in? They have developed a lot of computational models to determine the best production methods. Uh, that's based on cell type, media composition, reactor conditions. And uh, with this, they hope to generate the most cost-effective production strategies before these cultured meat companies ever even need to invest in the infrastructure themselves. Actually, these same types of issues with oxygen, nutrients, and cell density also apply to products trying to obtain a more structured meat product. For example, a chicken breast, rather than cells free-floating in solution. So what strategies are scientists and companies utilizing to create a three-dimensional type of meat product? Yeah, there's actually a lot of ongoing research out there to determine best methods for scaffolding and cell composition. So the scaffolding part is the matrix that the animal cells will adhere to and grow on, and it could be made in a couple of different ways. One method uses extrusion of proteins like gelatin or textured soy protein to manufacture the matrix. Or another method could use something like a biological scaffold. There was actually an interesting paper that came out recently where the researchers used the cellulose of a spinach leaf after the rest of the cellular components were removed. So now that there's a functional matrix, that still begs the question of which cell type will adhere, grow, and function the most similarly to animal meat. So far in the research that's been done, anywhere from one to three different animal cell types have been seeded onto a single matrix. And then the resulting cell matrix meat product in each of these studies was then tested for its similarity to meat, either through taste or texture. Now, the matrices in each of these studies was fairly thin. For example, it's pretty easy to picture the thickness of a spinach leaf. Actually, if you try to develop a matrix that's too thick, the issue of cell, nutrient, and oxygen diffusion to the center of that matrix becomes a challenge. In animals, we have capillaries that transfer nutrients and oxygen for us, but these 3D scaffolds are completely avascular, meaning they have no blood flow. So in thinking of this 3D meat issue, there are two ways that something like a chicken breast could be manufactured. In one method, companies are able to fix the diffusion problem and grow their muscle cells into a defined shape. Or in potentially another method, the animal cells are grown as smaller units and then retroactively assembled into the final desired shape, kind of like putting a puzzle together. That's a really interesting technology. And I just wanted to add that another possible solution to this could be uh, 3D printing. So 3D printing has also been used to create these structured meat-like products uh, that Nora was just referring to. And in February, earlier this year, the company Aleph Farms uh, recently announced that they have a new method to print uh, in 3D live animal fat and also muscle cells onto a plant-based matrix in order to create their own version of a ribeye steak. And so this technology, which is a mixture of printing and cell culture, could then give rise to many other types of meat products and other animal-derived consumer goods. Well, it is definitely critical to have alternatives for those larger structured meat products these sort of products are an important part of many cultures and traditions. Thank you so much, Nora and Lauren, for your insights on the cultured meat field. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Now that we've introduced the main pillars of food biotech, let's branch into some non-traditional topics. While biotechnology innovations continue to transform medicine and food, there are many other products in our lives that are changing as well, such as the material on our furniture and the clothes we wear. 
Lauren Christine and McMillan explore the use of plants, fermentation, and animal soil culture in the textile industry. Textiles themselves have been very closely entwined with the food industry, given that a lot of textiles like leather and down feathers, sometimes even fur and wool, are actually byproducts, or some may call them co-products, of the meat industry. So there's a lot of different types of textiles out there. And like food, you have plant-based textiles like cotton, hemp, bamboo, and animal-based textiles like fur, wool, feathers, leather. Um, there's also another category called uh, mechanochemical methods, uh, which produce synthetic fibers by electrospinning non-renewable substances like petroleum. And this includes textiles like polyester, acrylic, nylon, and spandex. And recently, we've started to see uh, some investigation into other sectors and alternative textiles, which is fermented and lab-grown textiles. They're just starting to be looked at as an alternative textile source. Wow, that's very interesting. So textile biotech sounds very similar to food biotech in terms of its categories. Well, of course, minus the mechanochemical methods. And it really makes you think of all other industries with products that can be shifted to plant-based fermented or lab-grown manufacturing methods like plastic, furniture, countertops. Who knows what new materials will be developed? So how new is this field of textile biotech exactly? Uh, yeah, well, just like food, biotech has been slowly entering the textile industry for decades without us even really realizing it. For example, Many companies in the fabric care business are using enzymes in their laundry detergent to aid in the digestion of tough stains. So they'll add proteases to degrade proteins, amylases to degrade carbs, or lipases to degrade fats, uh, these products that could be forming really tough stains on our clothes. Another good example of textile biotech is uh, the dye that is used in our blue jeans. So Indigo is actually naturally occurring in plants, but can't be obtained this way at the scales that our world wears blue jeans. Uh, so a while ago, we found ways to upscale the production of indigo using fossil fuel technology. But this obviously has a tremendous impact on the environment and can be very polluting. But recently, some biotech companies have been engineering microbes to produce an indigo dye, which would shift us away from non-renewable petrochemicals. Oh, wow. Like, I didn't realize that the actual dye from our genes was so bad for the environment. It seems that the fashion industry is especially harmful to the environment overall. We always hear the term like fast fashion. Um, that so much of the developed world is buying into actually just to be wearing whatever the latest style is. Exactly. Yeah. And, and fast fashion is terrible, not only because of how wasteful it is, but also because so many clothes are now made of synthetic fibers, uh, which don't degrade for hundreds of years. And when they finally do degrade, they degrade into toxic microplastics, which can, as we hear about all the time, wreak havoc on our water systems. And in fact, because of this, the textile industry is actually said to be one of the most polluting industries in the world, uh, second only to the oil industry. I buy a lot of clothes that are made from cotton, which is plant-based. So why don't we just switch to just completely plant-based textiles? 
yeah, that's a great question. Uh, a lot of people ask that. Even plant-based textiles like cotton have big problems because they are grown so much. They're essentially a monocrop. And because of that, they heavily rely on huge amounts of pesticides and herbicides to grow them. And not only that, they also consume a ton of water and they take up a lot of land. Not to mention cotton is kind of limited on what kinds of physical properties it can take, um, as are other plant-based textiles like hemp or bamboo, they can't be made into everything that we use. And they just simply can't replace all of our textiles, uh, especially if you think about materials like leather or, or down feathers. And many of these factors are why synthetic materials became so popular in the first place. Yeah, it's like one of those situations where as a consumer, it feels like there's no escaping or a golden solution for what we can wear without causing harm to the planet. We really need to start investigating alternative sources for our clothes and our other fabric. So besides plant-based in terms of usage in textiles, which we're pretty familiar with, are there any fermentation methods that exist now for textiles? Oh, yeah. Actually, in regards to fermentation, there, there are a few biotech companies out there who are working on producing fermented proteins for textiles specifically. One example is the major protein in spider silk, which, as we all know, is pretty strong. So the major protein in spider silk is called fibroin. And a company called Bolt Threads uh, was one of the first to overexpress fibroin in microorganisms like yeast and use it in various materials. They've actually been able to make uh, wristwatches. Um, that's the main product that they've made out of this fermented fibroin. But since then, Bolt Threads has actually ventured into another kind of fermentation. It's fermentation of leather products, which they're actually making from a fungus called mycelium and they'll press it down and tan it just like regular leather. So usually with food, you can you know, purify the proteins from your cells that you fermented, then simply add the purified protein as an ingredient into the food that you're making. But with textiles, as you can imagine, there is a whole other layer of engineering that's necessary. As you begin to form the proteins into fine threads or, or layers in the case of leather, Oh, wow. That is really, really interesting. So how exactly do you actually transform these purified proteins into a strong thread to make something as complicated as a wristwatch? Yeah. Uh, like I said, it's a whole other layer of engineering. There are electrospinning methods that can charge polymers, such as a protein. And so this can include individual proteins like the, the purified fibroin, and it will orient them via a fine electrical current. So this can produce really small threads of less than 100 nanometers, um, which you can see if you look very closely to any polyester clothing that you have. So electrospinning is what is currently done to transform petroleum oil into small polyester fibers that make up a lot of the clothes that we wear. As of now, uh, I believe electrospinning fermented proteins like the fibroin, it's very energy intensive and pretty low throughput for now, but uh, I'm pretty confident that this tech will really ramp up and we can hope to see some upscaling done soon so we can see bigger products than wristwatches. That's really neat that something as small as a protein can be oriented into fibers that are strong enough to form a thread. What about fur or skin? Why can't we just grow these in a lab from stem cells like they do with cultured meats? 
Uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I wonder the same thing. I really do think we'll start to see cultured skin or or hairs sometime in the next couple of decades. There are some startups around the world working on these types of things already. For example, there's a company called Modern Meadow. They're making cultured leather by growing up sheets of fibroblasts and then layering them together. And then they'll connect the fibroblast sheets uh, with lab-grown collagen that they'll do the whole leather process with that. So it's mimicking skin, but it's not exactly made like skin because the the thing about skin and also any type of follicle, uh, whether it be to produce the fur or wool or feathers, uh, what have you, uh, it's that these structures are a lot more complicated than growing skeletal muscle and fat tissue like they do for cultured meat. That's because you're not growing just tissue. You're actually growing an entire organ. Because remember, the skin is the largest organ in our body. Uh, The skin itself is an organ because it's uh, made up of several different tissue types. And hair and feather follicles, to make them, it requires a very precise orientation of cells. And they have to have undergone a very precise differentiation pathway so that they can keratinize. So this keratinization process it involves the overexpression of keratin proteins and other proteins that are capable of forming these really strong connections with neighboring cells. And it also involves a slow programmed cell death that results in hardening, like you see in your your hair, your nails, your skin. And I think that just like cultured meat, cultured fur and skin will be borrowing a lot from tissue engineering and regenerative medicine including a lot from hair growth and wound healing research. There are some companies who have made some strides in the lab-grown fur and skin, but it seems so far that their products are still on the micro scale. And also some of these follicles that they've been able to make take many months to develop, uh, which is obviously not very scalable. Yeah, so it looks like scaling production up always seems to be a huge hurdle in the initial stages of any new technology. Do you think alternative textiles will be easier to scale up than alternative protein in food? Mm, Yeah, well, I'm not quite sure. However, I will say the thing about textiles is that the industry won't have to expect the same hurdles when it comes to doing metabolic engineering of their cell lines in order to optimize them. So in the food industry, organisms have to be GRASS certified by the FDA. Uh, GRASS stands for generally regarded as safe. As of yet, there's no such requirement for textiles since no one will actually be ingesting them. So scale-up could potentially be drastically improved by genetic modification of the organism. Potentially, you could be making modifications to grow the organism more quickly or more efficiently produce your end product. But overall, I also think that we could just really be creative and innovate to find new ways to engineer cells to mimic the keratinization process that hair and skin undergo rather than completely replicating it like we would in making like a lab grown skin. Uh, You'd have to find like a a new cell fiber culturing method. But uh, if we can find something like that, it could potentially be a lot more scalable than the electrospinning of the fermented proteins or completely replicating the, the same protocols that are used in something so complex like regenerative tissue engineering. 
that is sounding like sci-fi to me right now, but it would be very exciting to figure out a new way to produce fibers just using cells themselves. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I feel like we could have an entire hour-long episode about this, but thank you for enlightening us about biotech for textiles. Yeah, uh, thank you, Macmillan. I agree. I think we could talk about this for much longer because there's so much to dive into in the world of fashion biotech, as I like to call it, even though textile biotech is a little bit more inclusive. But yeah, I'm excited to see what our next generation materials look like. Yeah, I agree. Um, fashion biotech really does sound catchy, and I, I think it'll be just an entire field on its own soon. Um, thank you so much, Lauren, for introducing the various aspects of this growing technology. Yeah, not a problem, guys. We've explored how alternative proteins can be applied to the different industries of food and textile production. But all of the information we've covered thus far stays within those three pillars, plants, fermentation, cell culture. But with our increasingly growing global population, nearing 10 billion people in the coming decades, the importance of alternative protein sources becomes more apparent and one important, yet often overlooked protein source, are insects. Macmillan, Mackenzie, and myself explore the insect ag industry and its current limitations. Humanity has a very interesting history with insects, especially as an alternative protein source. And in our modern age, we tend to overlook that importance of that history in the development of our modern society. For millennia, from 200 BCE to 1700 AD, protein fibers from Chinese moth caterpillars allowed for the creation of arguably the most important transcontinental trading route in history, the Silk Road. The name the Silk Road itself bears the significance of that lucrative protein fiber commodity from insect sources and the evolution of globalizing trade and commerce. As an alternative protein food source, many cultures throughout history relied on insects. Although the use of edible insects is yet to be mainstream in the United States, can you touch on the regions of the world where insects are a diet staple for most of the common citizens? Sure. In regions like Southeast and South Asia, Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, and the Philippines where I came from, eating insects such as bamboo worms, crickets, scorpions, water bugs, and so on are still dietary fixtures. In fact, according to the 2013 Edible Insect Report by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, over 2 billion people already consume insects as part of their diet. So it, it seems like it makes sense to use insects as alternative protein sources, but what seems to be a logical reason why certain groups of people in various regions of the world entertain the idea of consuming insects as alternative protein source? Yeah, insects are the largest class in the animal kingdom, both by numbers of individuals and by mass. So it makes sense that international organizations considered its utilization as an alternative protein source for the growing global population especially in the developing regions of the world where food insecurity and malnutrition are still very prevalent. Obviously, insects haven't really graced the American dinner table yet, but what seems to be the drawback in terms of making it mainstream to most of the West? Unfortunately, there is still that sense of disgust when we think of insects as food sources, and that is the current hurdle, especially in the West, in promoting insects as staple protein source, despite insects being packed with nutritional value, including protein, minerals, and fat, that is comparable to beef and poultry. 
For instance, a five-individual locust containing 72% protein is equivalent to a whole beef steak that is only 52% protein. It is quite interesting that despite sanctions done by the European Union to ban the production of genetically modified organisms, GMOs, as food sources, its reforms on insect farming and related industries have been very open and receptive. As a matter of fact, very recently, just May of this year, the EU has approved the use of the dried yellow mealworm as its first insect protein source for direct human sale and consumption. The EU has, of course, long considered the use of insects as alternative protein sources. And back in 2002, they passed European Union General Food Law, the regulation number 178 of that year, that allows or regulates the conditions for the production and commercialization of insects as food and feed. This law allows for livestock farmers and agrotech companies like Insect, spelled as Y-N-S-E-C-T, to supplement their feed with flour made from pulverized insects, mostly from beetles and mealworms. So it seems like the European Union has given a lot of thought in considering the use of insects for human consumption and alternative protein sources. But what other ways are insects being used to enrich and sustain food production? Yeah, the addition of insect protein flour to animal food is an ingenious way of adding nutrient source for these animals because we are seeing a decline in nutritional value of feed and fodder for livestock, poultry, and fish, respectively, due to the decreasing quality of land and water from overfarming. Further, the 2018 Edible Insect Report has recommended insect industries as a sustainable alternative protein source because farming them requires less water land space, and they produce less carbon, methane, 80% less than cows, and ammonia, about 10 times less than pigs, emission compared to the conventional livestock, poultry, and aquaculture industries. Insect farms, like that of insects, spelled with a Y, with an annual yield of a thousand tons, take advantage of vertical insect farming to limit the greenhouse gases for their production and limit the land usage. Wow, that's that's crazy. I didn't know it could insect agriculture could be that sustainable. Can you guys talk about the economic profitability of the edible insect industry and how it might grow in the decades to come? In terms of economic prospects in the edible insect industry, a new report from Barclays estimates it to become an 8 billion US dollar business by 2030. This industry rides with the wave of growing demand for alternative protein sources like plant-based and cultured meats. In the United States, however, I foresee that it will be a challenge to convince many of us to eat bugs unless we market them as superfoods and as sustainable food sources. Hence, it is quite important to circulate information on why the rest of the world is starting to embrace the utilization of insects for human consumption. What is the current state of regulation and consumptive use of insects for American consumers? Yeah, I can answer that one. Currently, the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, allows for the production of insects as a food source, similar to that of the EU's, but the difficulty in making it mainstream lies in the cultural and regulatory aspects of its use. Many Americans still consider insects as pests that do not belong in food production, and the FDA has tightly regulated insect use as food and cosmetic ingredients, but not necessarily as a whole food. This is why companies like Entomo Farms can produce whole roasted cricket snacks and whole flour from insects, but the cosmetic industry must report on the use of carmine and conchineal extract, insect scale-derived color additives in their products. Even more timely, chefs in eastern United States can take advantage of a very rare culinary opportunity, the periodical 17-year brood cicada emergence 
in making sumptuous gourmet dishes because the FDA allows for the use of edible insects in cooking. You guys have had a ton of information, but just one last question about insect agriculture. What is your take-home message when thinking about insects as alternative protein source for the Western consumer market um, and other regions where insects are yet to be embraced as as an alternative protein source? You're all familiar with seafood, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I love seafood. Yeah, so I like to point out that many of the luxury seafood that we now could casually enjoy, like crabs, lobsters, and other crustaceans, were not always seen as items worthy of being served in fancy restaurants. Much of what we now consider seafood basically considered as insects or pests of the sea. That is why with the increasingly health and environmentally aware generation of consumers, only time can tell when we start seeing more insect-derived products being used to feed the world, including the United States. And that's the hope for insect ag as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Macmillan and Mackenzie, for enlightening us on the promise of insect agrotech and keeping up with demand for alternative protein sources. You're very welcome, Nora. Yeah, thank you, Nora. There's a lot that can be gained from the alternative protein industry and its innovations, but as with anything new, there are bound to be some issues that can arise. In this final section, Lauren, Mackenzie, and Jacqueline highlight current negative aspects of the industry that are worth addressing as the technology is developing. All of these aspects we've discussed regarding alternative proteins sound remarkable. There has to be some sort of catch. Can you enlighten us on the possible pitfalls and some cons of using alternative protein sources? So alternative proteins do promise healthful consumption, sustainability to animals and the environment, and improved access to food throughout the world, and also a tasteful product similar to animal-derived food. But there are some counterpoints that may have some validity, and we should discuss them. First, there are some counter-narratives that stem from the livestock sector, and specifically the arguments have come from small to large-scale farmers, industry lobby groups governmental personnel, and multinational corporations. And interestingly, the initial belief and counter-argument was that alternative proteins were not a serious threat to conventional livestock industries. They didn't believe in the technological capabilities or the ability to generate products that could be satisfying and could compete with them. And it was also believed that consumers would potentially reject the science and methods involved in creating these alternative protein products. But actually, to their surprise, the sales grew rapidly over the past few years. And as a result, a new argument has actually emerged to label these alternative proteins as not real food. Yes, I've been hearing that a lot. We've heard the use of terms such as artificial or synthetic or even frankenfood in comparison to natural meat. I think that's been used especially among stakeholders in the livestock production. Yeah, exactly. And they've also started to highlight the need for biomedical techniques and technology, um, and also genetic engineering for their production. And they've been fighting back against the clean description of alternative proteins. And for this latter point, they would not necessarily be wrong in that many alternative protein products do contain many ingredients, some with less natural sources. Um, And these foods can also be closer to ultra processed foods. An interesting viewpoint has emerged, though, that since none of the commercial alternative protein products are exactly whole foods, maybe uh, consumers should refrain from thinking of them as daily meals and maybe just as treats and kind of a way to transition away from meat to help the animals and the planet without compromising your health from overconsumption. 
Yeah, the number of ingredients and the understanding of what those ingredients are can actually be very important to consumers. For example, there's a lengthy ingredient list on the Impossible and Beyond Foods. Uh, I think they have uh, 21 and 17 ingredients, respectively. And this alone uh, causes concern for some people. Yeah, there must be some way to overcome all of these ingredients. Are they all necessary? Well, it is possible to reduce some of the ingredients through further processing, but in this case, it'll still be an issue of a clean product. Performing what's called high pressure processing actually helps to reduce the number of ingredients by eliminating the need for certain binders in the product that are used for stability as well as food preservatives that can enhance food safety and also the shelf life. But in addition, some of these highly processed products contain unhealthy ingredient compositions as well, which in theory is one area that really has the greatest potential for change through the optimization process. And they could potentially be improved in terms of the nutritional content and the value of the products. So for example, as it stands now, at least, many brands create alternative protein products that are high in sodium, which does raise concern for the people with high blood pressure or those who may have a predisposition. Many brands are also using refined oils and saturated fats, as well as sugar, to levels that really are concerning if the goal is to have a nutritive or healthful diet. So for example, sunflower and coconut oil are used within the Impossible Burgers. Canola oil is used in Gardein and corn oil in the Boca Burger. Yeah, I mean, these are some uh, very valid points, but on the contrary, as we know, and we discussed earlier, animal farming has been related to so many environmental consequences, like the, the soil erosion, the exaggerated water consumption, the waste and accumulation of greenhouse gases. And I think this all gives sort of a push to utilize the plant-based and the aquatic protein substances to counteract these environmental tolls, even though, you know, it might involve a little bit more processing. Yeah, this is definitely true. And there are other nutritional problems, I think, related to the utilization of the plant substances. You know, the unbalanced amino acid profile, there's also anti-nutritional factors like the phytic acid, saponins and fibers, and also protease inhibitors can all impact the actual quality of the food. Whereas the animal proteins, on the other hand, they're actually a strong source of most essential amino acids and they contain more water soluble proteins. So this means that they're gonna be more um, readily digestible. But if we look at microalgae, for example, this alternative source offers a lot of important nutrients such as omega-3 fatty acids, and they can actually be a good substitute for fish consumption. And it's known that they also contain better quality proteins than uh, certain vegetables like rice or different veggies or wheat. But these proteins are not going to be as valuable as the animal proteins, such as those found in milk or in different meats, when we're considering the quality and the, the quantity of specific amino acids and their solubility. Hmm, that's very interesting. So plant-based meats are known to require a lot of processing to give them the texture of meat, as well as remove the off flavors from the plant itself. Uh, so do you know that affects the nutritional value of the final plant-based burger? Yeah, well, I mean, peas themselves tend to be high in phytochemicals and antioxidants and important micronutrients like selenium and folate and also fiber, which is really great. But the isolated pea protein uh, that goes into the burger 
which is extracted in a factory, doesn't actually appear to retain many of these healthy quantities found in the original pea. Hmm. So besides a potential nutritional compromise, which, you know, is a result of the processing to make the meat analog, are there actually any risks associated with their consumption? Potentially. Alternative protein products may actually cause allergic reactions or sensitivities or even digestive issues. Some of the well-known allergens that are used in a variety of the veggie burgers, like soy or wheat or nuts, um, and also the proteins in dairy, like cheese or milk, are at least detailed on the package so that consumers with these known allergies can be informed prior to purchasing them and consuming them. But I think what's more intriguing is that there may be other new ingredients that may induce allergic reactions or sensitivity responses. And these are really worth looking into. Uh, One particular company, Corn, that we discussed earlier, uh, had reports of a small subset of people who actually had adverse reactions to their alternative protein products. Uh, But it wasn't a large enough pool of individuals to really pursue further investigation into this, just in terms of what might be inducing the intolerance or sensitivity And I'd really like to see more research in this area be done just on the molecular and immunological level to characterize what could be going on in these people. I think, you know, to ensure the product safety, but also just to learn more about how our bodies respond to these new types of foods. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, especially since many of these ingredients, like like the fungus you just mentioned in corn products, they're so novel in the diets of not only tons of people, but even entire cultures. So who knows how someone's immune system would react to such a new formulation and who knows what kinds of formulations we will encounter over this alternative protein technology development. Yeah, exactly. I think there'd be a real improvement in the field if these new alternative ingredients were carefully evaluated by researchers. Even researchers in the microbiology and immunology fields, since we know the gut microbiota is readily affected by changes in the diet, and it plays a big role in health and disease. So I'd be curious to see how how these alternative proteins influence the gut microbes. Yeah, one question I have is how will we know how all of these new products are impacting human health? I I think that's one of the biggest questions that everyone's going to want to know. And as Jackie just emphasized, it's going to be very complex and probably very individualistic as well. As of now, there's currently very limited data on how the consumption of these various alternative proteins can affect our physiology. And there's definitely a strong need to improve our understanding on the impact of these alternatives on health and disease, especially uh, with the fermentation and the cultured meat technology, which is relatively new. Uh, So long-term studies will probably be more telling about the overall impact than just simple trials uh, that occur, you know, on small scales. Yeah. And just to add on, there are some sometimes ethical concerns too, such as do you test the alternative proteins on animals first before humans consume them? Yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, in addition, the cost, the supply, reliability, and the safety, they're all really important factors when considering the cons of alternative proteins. Although I think with more investments and scale up, we could really see improvements in these areas. 
In regards to the ethical concerns, uh, when it comes to cell-based meat, that's typically where the ethical concerns will probably be the, the biggest. For example, cell-based meat or cultured meat uses a fetal bovine serum in its growth medium. But it is true that technology has progressed and, and some companies are replacing this uh, fetal bovine serum, which is obtained from dead calves. Uh, they're replacing that with a plant-based growth medium. However, even both approaches are very costly, but plant-based is especially costly right now. And also to, to keep the media from being contaminated, cultured meat is probably going to rely heavily on antibiotics, which many consumers want to avoid, even though antibiotics are also used in the livestock industry. But hopefully they could be used less in a controlled environment uh, for cultured meat. But who knows? Also, the cultured meat might not actually address health concerns that are associated with eating meat and getting all that saturated fat and potentially cholesterol too, which is found in conventionally grown meat. And it might continue to be carcinogenic and pose risk to the heart and colon. Yeah, yeah. And there's certainly, you know, more research that needs to be done to answer some of these questions. But I think there, while there are less than optimal factors related to the alternative proteins, like those we've just described, we shouldn't forget all of the great advancements and opportunities that this field holds. And we can really consider these factors as we, you know, continue to improve and make strides in the field. Yeah, thank you both for providing the objective look at alt protein and allowing us to learn a bit about risks associated with the new technology out there. I agree that these are just opportunities for improvement when it comes to advancing the field. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm really excited to see how this field develops. And I feel so lucky that it's happening in our lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Thank you. Hopefully this podcast piqued your interest with some tasty facts about the alternative protein industry. If you would like to continue this discussion with us and the rest of the Johns Hopkins Alternative Protein Project, you can check out our Instagram at jhualtprotein, no spaces or underscores, our LinkedIn at Johns Hopkins Alt Protein Project, or you can email us at jhualtprotein at gmail.com. We work closely with the Good Food Institute, and you can find them on Twitter at goodfoodinst, or check out their website at gfi.org. Finally, you've already made it to the end of a very information-dense podcast, but we want to challenge everyone to do something extra this week for yourself, for animals, for the environment. Maybe you make a move to eat vegan for a day. Maybe you walk or bike to work instead of drive. Maybe you volunteer at a local animal shelter. Whatever moves you, we support all efforts to improve animal and human welfare, health, and sustainability. Thanks for joining us.